Hi, and welcome to the What's Cooking podcast, where we talk to food entrepreneurs about how they got started, their journey so far, and what gets them out of bed in the morning. I'm Beth. And I'm Kat. And today we're chatting to Mira, chef, author, and entrepreneur who's changing the perception of Indian cuisine with a healthy approach. She just published her first cookbook, Saffron Soul, and we can't wait to hear more. Hi, Mira. Hi, guys. Hi. So lovely to be here and on your podcast. So pleased to have you. Thank you. So where did it all start? My food journey began, I would say, around four or five years ago, um, when I was actually sitting in a cafe in Bombay, sitting outside and thinking about how I had brought all these snacks to India. I used to travel to India a lot, and I still do, but at the time I was living in Dubai, so I travel very often. And I'd brought all these snacks to India from popcorn to uh, granola bars and sweet stuff. You know, I have a very... I have a real sweet tooth, so I brought all these sweet snacks with me. And I was sitting there thinking, why have I brought all these snacks when actually Indian food is healthy? And suddenly my mind got ticking and I was thinking about how I'd been brought up eating very wholesome, fresh and healthy Indian food. And yet I'd veered away from it because I was sort of sucked in by the media telling me that granola bars and low-fat snacking is the way to go and I had during my teenage late teenage years and 20s struggled with weight and I put on weight very quickly so I'd basically not eaten proper Indian food on a daily basis for a very long time and while I lived in Dubai and I was traveling a lot um, I was basically looking for healthy cafes but basically eating loads of sweet snacks and my digestion was already quite slow and traveling made it even worse so I sat there thinking about how my perception of Indian food was all wrong and that the whole world's perception of Indian food was basically that was unhealthy. So why not change that perception? And that's how the idea got rolling. That's great. That's really interesting. And why do you think there is that misconception of Indian food? We define Indian food by the kind of food that we have in restaurants, whether it's the Bengali restaurants or the Punjabi restaurants that we have and traditionally in London or internationally, the kind of food that we have in Indian restaurants is defined by one region of India or two regions of India, not the whole of, of India. And that kind of food tends to be quite heavy. It's rich in oil sometimes to make it more flavorful. It's rich in color sometimes. They put a lot of color into the food to make it more vibrant. And there's a lot of cream used. And then there's naan bread. So it all feels quite heavy, stodgy. And you come out feeling like you've had a very, very heavy meal. But actually, if you're, if you're to cook Indian food at home, you don't need to make it so heavy and you don't need to cook it with so much oil and so much cream or butter. You don't need any of that. You just need some spices. You need your spice box, a little bit of oil, you know, onions, garlic, and ginger, and that's sort of it. And then your vegetables, whatever curry or dal you're making. So essentially, it's a very healthy cuisine. But it's just that we are um, deterred from making it at home because we want to recreate the flavors that we have at restaurants. And those flavors are very, you, we think that they're very hard and complex to actually recreate. But actually recreating them at home is quite easy, but in more simplistic form. And I think the great thing about Indian food is that it is, each dish can be made very distinct from, from the other. Even if similar ingredients are used, you can actually make each dish taste very different because of the spice combinations and the way it's cooked. And the flavors don't need to be so complex. And even the simple flavors can be so flavorful. They add an abundance of taste flavor and sort of like a spice in your mouth that you don't actually need to overpower it. And also knowing how to do it. So if you just learn the basic principles of Indian cooking, which is what I did when I came back to London, I started learning the basic principles from my grandmother, my mother, my aunts. And in the process of doing so, I then started experimenting. And I think anyone can do that because 
I basically did that from not really knowing how to cook Indian food, even though I'd grown up eating it. I didn't know what actually went into the food until I came back at the age of, you know, just before I, was, I turned 30 and started learning all this food. Why is it important to you to create lighter versions of traditional Indian dishes? For me, it's more about making Indian food and Indian cooking accessible to all at home, uh, making it appealing so that people can think that they can cook Indian food at home as opposed to thinking that they need to create these complex flavours and dishes and therefore creating it in a simple way and really making it about the flavour and the wholesomeness and the healthfulness of those flavours and those ingredients rather than about creating a dish that really makes you feel like you've put a lot into your stomach and and feel heavy afterwards so and I think Indian food is based on the principles of Ayurveda which you must have heard about you know the science of life which is actually a Veda which is a scripture and it's based on and all Indian food is based on that but it's sort of got lost in translation in the sense that we may not eat at the right time we might overdo certain chilies or spices in the actual food and make it overly spicy which is what which is not what it should be you know adding too much oil yes oil is good for you but you don't need to put it in excess amounts fried food for example Indian food is really known for its five fried snacks but you don't need to make those fried snacks at home you know when you go out and have a meal that's fine Um, and so for me it's all about bringing it back to its basics and showing people that actually if you just figure out those basic principles and have the spice box in your house you can experiment and add so much flavor as well as nutrition to your food because each spice has an abundance of nutrients and nutritional benefits yeah yeah it does so do you have go-to ingredients or spices that you often use in your cooking yes absolutely for me the spice box itself we we call it the masala daba it's basically a round tin and inside the tin there are like about six smaller round uh, things that fit compactly into that tin Um, and each one has a spice and that basically is what you need for Indian cooking so the middle one we paste we put um, mustard seeds and fenugreek seeds so many more mustard seeds there's a few fenugreek seeds in there fenugreek doesn't really add that much in terms of flavor but it's very very good for you it brings down the blood sugar it's also very good for cholesterol so it's good to put it in your cooking mustard seeds are very key to making Indian food taste like Indian food as well as cumin seeds so there'll be another little box which will have cumin seeds in there and then there'll be turmeric so that's a bright yellow obviously then there'll be red chili powder which is you know, quite important in Indian food, but you can omit that if you want. And then there's the, um, what we call dhanajiru, which is a mix of the coriander powder and the cumin powder. But there's a lot more coriander powder than cumin powder in there, so it's in a specific proportion. And you can actually buy it mixed ready. Um, And that goes in most curries. So once you put the vegetables or the pulses in, you basically add the cumin and coriander powder. So it doesn't burn, you put it in afterwards and then you mix it in, the way you put turmeric in. And then you've got the salt, and that basically makes your masala dabba. And that is key in any Indian cooking. If you go to any Indian person's house, they'll bring out the masala dava. They'll all have one because it's the easiest thing to use. If you start putting it into jars and opening jars, you're, you know, by the time you open one jar and close the other, your curry may have like got overcooked or whatever it is. So it's just easier to use that little box. Then there are the saffron and cardamom, which I use a lot in my desserts. I've used them a lot in my book. And um, that's just a separate little jar that I have. I think that's my go. those are my go-to spices. And cinnamon, as with any kitchen, I absolutely love my cinnamon. But that's not necessarily an Indian spice. It's more, I just use it in my porridges and hot, hot drinks and that sort of thing. 
That's a great tip. I always see those little um, spitons, and I think they're really cute, but I've never really understood the true yeah. meaning of them. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have like one little tin, which might be the odd bits of, you know, clove and a couple of cinnamon sticks if you want. Um, so everyone, you know, has that one component that might be different. But all in all, those are the spices that you need. And it's just so much easier to use it in that. The only yeah. thing is that when I transport that tin, say I'm going somewhere and cooking somewhere else, it literally all gets mixed up. So I have to, you know, put a cling film over each and every little thing, so component, so that it doesn't actually spill into one another. But they're so great. I actually work with a company called Spice Kitchen UK, um, which is online and you can basically buy those masala dubas, those spice boxes online, and they send them to you with a lovely sari sort of jacket. Oh, wow. So they're all bound up and then they send them to you with my book or with someone else's book. You, you can basically buy the tin or the tin in somebody else's book. They work with a lot of Indian chefs. So That's a nice great. little present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so lovely. You mentioned that you... Um, learned a lot from your family members and you obviously taught yourself. Did you have any formal training or has it all been kind of through experimentation and family? I haven't had any formal training. <laughs> Funnily enough, I was actually at a lovely place in Bombay called Food Hall India, which is sort of the equivalent of Whole Foods here or Planet Organic and uh, very high end sort of. But there aren't many supermarkets in India. So that's one of the only ones. So I was in Bombay working there actually with their chefs um, doing a demo for the customers there and two of the chefs you know they're very prim and proper great chefs and all trained in beautiful amazing schools like the Taj or the Oberoi and um, one of them goes to me ma'am where did you do your training and I said uh, at home with my grandmother <laughs> he just looked at me he didn't know what to say and he was like that's the best kind of training <laughs> and it, I guess it might might be called the best kind of training I think it would be lovely to sort of learn new skills and techniques which maybe I don't have up my sleeve right now but I haven't yet gone about it in a way of formal training just because there's been no time I sort of went into cooking very organically um, I started selling my products very organically it's all through people I've met and people I've spoken to and not really planned that much and that far in advance, which is why why I'm like now thinking about my next book and not sure where I'm going with all this. I think that's absolutely right. Learning at home from family members and teaching yourself is the best way because then you really direct it into the way you want, you know, the place you want to go. Yeah. No, it's been amazing. I mean, I think my grandmother has just herself learned so much over the years and picked up so much over the years. And I've done a few videos with her on my YouTube channel. And she's such a little cute. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people call her cute. It's funny that we call old people cute because it's a, it's really odd to say that. Like It's like, yeah. you know, you call a baby cute. But actually, she is quite adorable. But she still tells me off. She's like 87. Um, and she's, uh, she's still very, very able in the kitchen she requires a little bit of help now and again but otherwise she's very able and I you know she comes up with even yesterday she made um gulab jamun which are these very um well-known Indian dessert sweets which are I've never made them myself because there's a real process and I don't really have an interest in frying deep frying sweet desserts um and Indian desserts can be really sweet and really heavy and really calor calorific but anyway she made them and I, I I just wondered how she has remembered all these recipes I understand that day-to-day -day, you know curry roti and rice but like beyond that all the recipes she remembers I just don't know how she does it and so I was speaking to her about it and she just thought it was a weird question that I was asking her like how do you remember it without writing anything down but but that's what that it's amazing learning from someone like that um, and from my mother as well.
Yeah, and amazing to get that knowledge from her. Yes, exactly. And before, you know, anything happens in the future, I really want to write a lot more down because there is a so much so much wealth of information that my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, they all have. So how did you first get into supper clubs? I love doing supper clubs. I heard about I heard the word supper club like when I first came back to London, having lived out in Dubai and travelled a lot. And I thought it was quite different and fancy and I didn't have that many friends going to supper clubs or going to try different cuisines and healthy things and healthy restaurants. Um, so I thought, well, let me go by myself. So I went to a couple of supper clubs by myself, met a few people. It was, I guess, a tiny bit awkward, but all in all, people are very friendly and I made a few friends at the supper clubs. And I thought it was just a lovely way to for chefs to or new chefs to take over restaurants because they won't have their own restaurant or they want to showcase their food in a different way. And it's just such a lovely way to bring people together and to allow those people to also bond in a very different way because in a restaurant you're not going to speak to the next table the next person sitting sitting near you um so i really liked the idea and i just thought it would be a natural way for me to um show people what i'm all about and for them to taste my food rather than trying i didn't really want to do a cafe at the time and i wasn't really sure where i was going with all this so i started doing supper clubs just speaking to people and saying oh, i want to do a supper club and then it just sort of rolled from there and people have generally always been so open to collaborating which has been fantastic i remember doing one at raw press when i was i've been working with raw press for three years now so some of my products are sold there and i did one with raw press where we actually did a film night even though it's such a small place that they had like the film and then I did the food afterwards and it was such a lovely way to bring people together even though it was a tiny space and people were like on deck chairs and <laughs> it was quite funny and from there on I've just done a lot of different supper clubs from the likes of Dalloway Terrace where I did my Diwali supper club which is amazing we got amazing coverage in like Time Out magazine and other um, evening standard and places and Grace Belgravia which is a lovely wellness club members club but non-members can come to events and I've done about five supper clubs with them done one at 108 Marleybone which is a a restaurant within the Marleybone Hotel. Can't even think where else. Um, but I've done a number of Rye. Rye. Rye was one of my best. Rye London because it's just they made it so ex exquisite and homely. Candles got some lovely photography from that, and it was just you know we bought lots of wine and everyone was just sort of filling up their glasses and having a jolly merry time. It was just after I'd I published my cookbook, so it was sort of my first supper club after my cookbook came out, so it was lovely. But all in all, I just love bringing people together and I love making new dishes and trying new menus out. Um, and I do that at my yoga brunch as well. Incredible places that you've had supper clubs. Do you usually approach them or does it depend or do they come to you? Generally, I've approached them, or it's been an introduction, um, and then they've, for example, Grace Belgravia has worked with me five, on five or six different supper clubs because the first went so well, so we did another, um, and we are planning another one soon, but this time we might do a yoga brunch instead of a supper club. So I've not done that many places twice apart from Grace Belgravia, simply because the next thing came up and the next thing came up. But each one has had its own beauty and charm and it's been so wonderful to work with different chefs and see how these different places work. So most of them have actually not done supper clubs before. So 108 Marlebone, uh, Dalloway Terrace had never done a supper club before. So 
we weren't really sure how to work together so I basically sent them my recipes they the chefs tried them out we then had a tasting session so it was a lot more of a process and then on the night I went in with certain things so I had my masala mix for example ready for the aubergines but they did the aubergines they made it or they grilled it and I just added my masala mix because there were certain things I wasn't sure about sort of letting go because with Indian food you need to be very sort of um, specific on the flavor or you want to make sure that it reaches that same level of sweetness or spice or whatever it is so I sort of just worked with each and every place and each and every chef very differently and with Grace and Belgravia for example I've got into a very comfortable routine with the chefs there I mean they know my food so I, I leave most of it to them apart from say for example I take my cheesecake with me so it's been amazing and I, I would love to be approached by more places and I'd love to do more places but I think it's one of those industries where you sort of need to be out there and be pushing yourself and be getting in touch with lots of people and just see what what happens is that how you've been selling tickets? Is that the best way, sort of connecting with people, going to other people's supper clubs and chatting? Yes, people? I think going to other people's supper clubs, su supporting other people in the industry is brilliant. I think it's a really lovely way to meet other people and to get to know other chefs and foodies in the industry. For me, what's very important in selling tickets is the collaborative aspect of these supper clubs so working with other brands who have their own following and their own outreach has been great because why while I've been building up my momentum and my follow following um, it's only now got to a stage where people are waiting for my next event it doesn't start that way and when you're initially starting up you sort of do rely on the um, person you're partnering with or the brand that you're partnering with their audience and their outreach so you've just got to try and get it out in different ways and put it on all forms of social media try and get it listed onto um, a pop-ups website if you can um, try and get other people to tweet about it or to put it on their Instagram so it's really just experimenting there's really no formula I don't think even though I've now got to a stage where people are waiting for my next event and you know they're contacting me saying when is your next event when's your next supper club which is an amazing place to be at I still don't think I could sell out within two days if it wasn't for the other party as well so it and, and you do need a little bit of you know that time so you know putting it out three weeks in advance four weeks in advance always helps but you've also got to wait till the last moment sometimes because sometimes people people in London or people in a busy city want to wait till that two days before um, just to know to make sure they're free for example so it's it's no there, there's no formula but I would say just push every which way and really try and get the other party to push as much as they can as well that's so funny I've had that experience a lot we always sell out the clubs in the last week Yes, people, isn't the it? Last week, yeah. I was like, "Oh, I need to book my ticket." Oh, no. It's well, I do that myself. I do it as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Should, so yeah. yeah, when I get freaked out that other people haven't booked, I'm like, "Well, I'm basically just like that." So I'll wait, <laughs> and then two days before, if it's sold out, I'll get really upset. But actually, it was my own fault. <laughs> yeah. But also, also, I would say creating a buzz on social media. So it sounds, even if it's not true, saying things like, "Oh, we've only got five tickets left," or it really yeah. helps. I think. Most of the time, maybe it is true. But even if it isn't, just try and push it like that on its Insta stories or talk about it or get other people to talk about it. Because um, 
all those things help. I once put something out um, last year saying secret supper because I thought one of the guys who comes to my supper clubs a lot, he wanted to do a supper club at his house and he wanted to invite, he just wanted to put the tickets out there and see what happens. And we had no time. We, we had a week. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not sure if this is going to work because yes, I do have followers, but one week is just nothing. But so we added the secret supper element. I didn't know how much that would help because I didn't want to reveal the location. It was someone's house. And so it's a secret supper in shortage. And it sold out within like a couple of days. And I think the secret secret really helped because two or three people from abroad messaged me saying when's your next secret summer club (laughs) you know if you're going to be in London on these dates can you do one then (laughs) exclusivity people love it exactly so I'm like "Hmm, you mentioned your yoga brunches that sounds great tell us a bit more about those yeah so I started yoga brunches when I first got into food, again, like through Raw Press or um, I actually did one of my first ones at the Hoxton Hotel in Hoban, and which was lovely with a friend of mine who teaches yoga, a Jiva Mukti teacher called her name is Melody Heck. And then I did a few more and they sort of, I, they went really well, but I realized quickly that you need a very big space for yoga. Even if the table is quite large for breakfast, if you can't fit more than 10 yogis in, you're not going to be able to do a very big space you know yoga brunch so I sort of left them and I started focusing on supper clubs more but then I got in touch with Clem who runs the yoga brunch club and she calls you know on Instagram it's known as the yoga brunch club and she's fabulous she, she has these very large spaces one's in uh, Brixton and the other one's in Bristol uh, where she works with different chefs each time and different uh, yoga teachers and brings together about 40 people each time and so I did two or three with her and then Recently, we both did one at Liberty. So that just finished two days ago. We had two Sundays in a row at Liberty during their January reset campaign, which was literally one of my favorite events ever. I mean, going into the store at like 9 a.m. on a Sunday, two hours before it opens and in total silence. It was just so magical you know just like I love the Liberty store but seeing it at that time and then going into the heritage suite which has its own history and and charm it's like this antique room where we're setting up the brunch um and then it was snowing on Sunday so it made it even more magical it was just really beautiful place to do it and I loved collaborating with Clem of Yoga Brunch Club and working with the Liberty team and I wish I could do a few more but that's only in January so um but I'm planning to do a few more I'm actually speaking to Grace again soon about yoga brunches because I think they're just such a lovely way to bring people together with similar interests what was on the menu at your liberty bunch club so we decided for practical reasons because the tables were not large and we wanted to put flowers and 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 uh you know, glasses of water and chai and everything on the table, we decided to do Buddha bowls rather than having platters. Usually I do platters serving, sharing platters of, you know, whether it's the salad and the other dish and the sweet potato wedges. But because the tables weren't large, we actually put everything into, into people's, into everyone's bowl and served the bowl to them. So the meal started with a sort of turmeric chia pudding, um, sweetened with dates, spiced with cardamom and cinnamon and it was sort of put into a sort of turmeric coconut whip and once they finished that and that was topped with granola sort of flakes granola flakes and berries Um, and once that finished they moved on to their buddha bowl which contained maybe about four different dishes in one so that was the upma which is a very traditional south indian dish but in my book i've done it with quinoa so it's a 
healthier grain to make upmog with lots of vegetables and coconut, fresh coconuts grated into that. And then the other dish was the sweet potato wedges, which I served with an Indian chimichurri sauce. And the third dish was a kale salad with just simple tahini and paprika dressing, just to sort of make the bowl a bit lighter and not have too much cooked food in the, in, the, in the bowl. And I had a couple of other sauces and cherry tomatoes and roasted red peppers. And then on the tables, we had platters of my masala mushroom bread, which is not really a bread. It's sort of made with psyllium husk, oats, and lots of good fiber. And there's no yeast or no soda bicarb or anything. And I basically put garam masala and mushroom mix in there. So it's flavorful and hearty and warming and served with three different sauces and chutneys. So, which was all gone by the end of the brunch, which was great. I'm not surprised. It sounds yeah, incredible. It was a really lovely brunch and it all sort of turned out to be really colorful worked really well with their beautiful liberty flowers as you can imagine and um the whole brunch started with a chai and ended with a turmeric chai so and and i served obviously my some of my cocoa fudge pieces but this time i'd added a layer of salted caramel dates above it so it was uh it was a special couple of sundays i'm sad i missed it that That sounds so good (laughs) I mean it was just I think I really wish that space was bigger or we'd done more there because we had a lot of people asking it it, it sold out very very quickly so how many places do you do you have there in Liberty they only have space for 28 people sitting or 27 people sitting at lunch because it's a very the suite where we do it it's called the heritage suite Mm. it only has space for two long tables and only 27 people can fit so kind of makes it more special yeah it's a nice yeah it was really special intimate and it was a nice number to work with Mm. um but it's just we got into the rhythm you know two Sundays and it was just been I was just dying to get there the next Sunday and be like yes I'm rocking up (laughs) (laughs) so you touched on your fudge there so you also stock some products in retailers across London? Yeah, so not too many. I haven't actually branched out with my products as much, um, but I do sell them. And the main product is the cocoa fudge, which is made with chickpea flour, dates and coconut oils. It's a very simple product and it tastes like fudge, um, but it's not actually fudge. <laughs> it's a take on Indian sweet, a much healthier take on an Indian sweet. And chickpea flour, bizarrely enough, um, is used a lot in both Indian snacks and in Indian sweet snacks and desserts. Cooked, you have to cook it to, to a certain level so that, you know, it's made to make sure it's not raw um, and then you add and melt in the dates so it's really really delicious and more moorish and I sell it at raw press where it's selling really really well and I've also stock it at a couple of private clinics in Chelsea and I've sold it at other places before but I'm not really expanding that just yet um, and I also have a chai spice mix which is used by various cafes in London um, which is again a very authentic blend of seven spices and coconut sugar and it's used by detox kitchen it's used by raw press by department of coffee hoban dining rooms and a few others um so that's like a more authentic alternative to the very sweet sickly chai latte exactly (laughs) exactly i think people also mistaken and i think this was my perception as well before i started making my chai spice mix is that i thought the Indian chai contained more cinnamon than anything else. Like I always thought of it as a sweet cinnamon chai. Mm. But actually, cinnamon is a very small component of the seven spices. The most predominant spices are cardamom and ginger. And then you have black pepper, white pepper, nutmeg and clove. Um, So it's really warming. It's quite spicy, quite gingery, peppery and 
got a hint of cinnamon. So it's lovely. And it's got um, coconut sugar, which sweetens it. And I think it just works really well, especially with people who sort of are used to that very mild chai and they, they want something a bit more tasty. And how do you serve it? Do you just mix it with hot milk? Yes, exactly. Most of these places mix it with hot milk. I think it also works well if you just add a tiny bit of turmeric or matcha or whatever you want, because all it is is spice. It's not actually got any caffeine. You could also mix it with a tea bag, but all of that is kind of a bit of a palava. So most cafes just serve it with hot water. So when people say chai latte, it's not really a chai because a chai has to have tea leaves. Most of these chai lattes don't have tea leaves. They're just made with spices. So you can actually add a shot of coffee and call it a dirty chai. <laughs> have you seen this? Yeah. <laughs> I quite like that name, actually. Yeah, it's funny. Quite funny. Are they tasty? Does it work? Yeah, it works. I've not tried it at any of the cafes, but I've had, you know, coffee with my sp- spices and mm. it's fine. It's lovely. Mm. If you like spicy coffee, it's great. Um, cool. You just mentioned Hob and Dining Rooms and we know that you've been collaborating with them on their menu. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I love working with them. Hob and Dining Rooms is part of the Rosewood Hotel, which is simply magnificent. I love that place. So again, it's one of those stories where I was walking past one day, as with Royal Press and selling my products there, I was walking past Hob and Dining Rooms three years ago, maybe, and walked in because I thought, oh, I have a bit of spare time in Hoban. Um, Let me just go and have breakfast there. And they led me to the Hoban dining rooms I actually walked into the Rosewood Hotel so I sat down there was no one really around and the manager Caroline was wandering around so I spoke to her because I realized there's a deli uh, attached to the dining rooms and I had some of my at the time one of my products was the uh, well my main product was the energy balls but they had a lot of ginger in them so she tried them and I said well would you like to sell them in the deli even though I hadn't got any packaging sorted nothing and she said absolutely bring them in just like Raw Press had done two weeks before that or a month before that so I brought them in they started selling them then I had a new product which was a cheer pudding started selling that and then it became and then it rolled into the fudge which is what I've stuck with now. And so they started selling in their deli. It was going really well. And some, one fine day, the chef from the dining rooms calls me and says, oh, we'd like to put your cheer pudding on the actual menu. Would you be able to supply it to us? And I said, would love to do it. But supplying means I need to figure out when it goes off by and how often I and how much would you need. Figured it all out and I had to do it twice a week, pretty much. And then it got to a stage where I was not really coping because I didn't know how much they needed and how much was being thrown and when their demand was suddenly going up and I'd have to go in suddenly to get deliver it to them. So I changed over to another dish, which has stuck on the menu ever since, which is the cinnamon and coconut granola and saffron lime compote so they basically the base layer is the saffron lime compote then it's the yogurt and then it's the cinnamon and coconut granola so I started supplying that to them because it doesn't go off as quickly and it was also a very colorful dish and it really worked well on the menu so that's been on the menu and I finally handed over the recipe to them so now they're making it themselves because the demand has really gone up because everyone from the hotel is suddenly eating having breakfast only at the home dining room so it's the demand surged up like last year. So we decided that they should make it. But it's so amazing working with them because they put me on their menu. They've added in that I'm the author of Saffron Soul, so that's great for me. They were also keeping the book um, in stock in their deli until their deli very recently closed down, which was also great for me because they don't really keep any other books there. Um, and they're just a really great team to work with. They're very experimental. Callum himself, who is the head chef there, makes the most amazing pastries. He's like become known for his pastries now. And it's just the most beautiful place to walk into so now and again I'll just go in and have a bit of breakfast and leave so I definitely highly recommend going and trying my 
pot of deliciousness for breakfast. I think that's a great idea. And that's such a lovely collaboration, a genuine partnership between you both. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And I really would love to do more of this. And I think people, there was a time when I think people were um, not very willing and chess were not willing, willing to collaborate in this way, because, you know, it sort of takes that identity away and sharing that sort of space but now everyone wants to collaborate and it's incredible i think it's just such a lovely way to open up audiences as well because you have different followings you have different people you know and you generate interest through and it just works together um even if the chefs are entirely different mm. i mean callum is does a lot of meat oriented dishes and i'm completely vegetarian so that in itself is such a big difference and yet he's so willing to collaborate which is amazing it is, you're right. It feels like a really exciting time in food in general with, as you say, people collaborating exactly. and being so willing to work together. Yeah, it's I really think it's nice. brilliant. What was your inspiration for the book and how did you find the book, the writing process? I started off this whole food journey with wanting to do a book. I've always loved writing. I've actually written a novel, which I didn't end up publishing in a mic podcast publish one day hopefully will do but the point is that I love 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 writing and the food actually came secondary so for me I really wanted that book from the minute go but I realized quickly when I actually started trying to get my proposal out there three years ago four or five years ago when I wasn't known that actually even though my concept was great nobody knew who I was nobody knew my name and that was a big obstruction because I, I either you need to have a restaurant or cafe or you need to be a bit of a celebrity but you at least need to be known you can't just have that unique flavor or cuisine or way of cooking you need to be building up that following so I didn't realize any of this and that's how the products, that's how the supper clubs happened, because the whole idea for me was I need this book out there. And then eventually the supper clubs and the products and all of that had its took their own shape and their own sort of form and identity. And I started loving all of that, but I still had the book in my mind. So eventually, two, three years later, when I actually got introduced to Jackie Small, who published my book, my first book, it was such a it was such an exciting moment for me for them to finally say yes to a book which I'd had in my heart for so long and they formulated the idea for me because even though I had the idea it was sort of all over the place and they brought it together and nailed it down and we figured out that the book shouldn't just be about sort of healthy food with an Indian twist which is what we were also considering but it should actually be a marriage of the foods that I've grown up eating and the foods that I've created so it would be a bit about the journey and where I've come from and the traditional aspect of the food I've I've sort of eaten from a young age um, and my own recipes which have been inspired by all of that so the book really is that it's it's 50% of the traditional and 50% with my own take on it and 50% of the recreations and the more modern inspired cuisine um, and that's how it all happened. And what was your favourite part of the process of the book? I think for me, I learned the most with the photography and I worked with an incredible photographer, Nasa Marothika. Uh, we became really good friends. It was a very difficult process because we weren't, we didn't have enough time um, and we were running short on time to photograph everything. But that in itself was the best part for me because I love working with people. And as you might know, food is quite a solitary thing when you're actually cooking and doing your blog and initially doing everything. It's a very solitary process. It's only when you go out and meet people that you actually meet people. So working with a team like Nasa 
uh, Tanya who did all my, Tanya Gomes who did the artistic um, design for the book and with the props director Jennifer Haslam Haslam um, working with all three of them pretty much every day for seven days and having my editor walk in now and again and doing it all from my house with my mom and my grandmother it was just such a fun enjoyable and amazing process and then trying to get out of the garden photographing my grandmother and grandfather eating something, um, getting my nephews over because I wanted them in my book. I wanted everyone who'd sort of been part of that journey to be in the book somehow. So we sort of made it happen, but in a very crazy way. I don't know how that week, no, it was two weeks actually, it was spread over two weeks. Um, and it was just the most epic experience. And I, I just can't wait to do it all over again. That sounds so lovely. Yeah, it was wow. a really, really fun time. I have to say it was hard. It was very sort of, you know, morning till night and we were making chai on the tap, basically. <laughs> Everyone was just guzzling it, uh, literally. I don't know how much chai the photographer and my like art director, they were just drinking cups and cups and we were all wired. <laughs> Nassima came back the second day. She's like, I didn't sleep last night. I couldn't get to sleep. So like, maybe the chai needs to stop post 3 p.m. <laughs> um, it was super fun. Were your family keen to get involved with the shoot? They were... Did they really enjoy the experience as well? Yeah, they loved it. I think um, my grandmother, I didn't realise how willing she was, but even recently we did a video together. And initially she'd say, oh, really? And then, but you know, she's really looking forward to it. So I'd be like, make sure you wash your hair today. <laughs> and she loved it. She just, you know, she's, but she's very much in her own element. It's very difficult to tell her, now stop. No, 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 you have to stop now. And he'd have to like, because she also doesn't speak English. So I have to like be, no, 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 stop right now. And she'd start laughing in the middle of it and be like, no, 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 you can't laugh right now. We're trying to take the photo. <laughs> <laughs> um you've got so many different sides to your business how do you manage all those aspects I really wish I could say that I'm very very well planned but my life has always been such that I've never really planned properly um and I think half of the creativity gets sparked from the spontaneity of it which is great to a certain extent but I've now realized the value in being able to plan even just the week a bit more, just knowing that I need to do X, Y, Z recipes this week. I also need to send, you know, X number of recipes to this magazine. I, I also need to meet these two people. And I think now that I've got to that stage where I know um, I can be a little bit more organized, um, but I don't think I have a formula or a really like this is how many hours I dedicate to this or this is how many hours. I'm just very driven and therefore I work a lot. But if I was a little more organized, maybe I could condense the number of hours into a specific working period rather than be like coming home at 11 p.m. and thinking I need to write five emails. And I do do that often. That's not great. And I really wish I could say that I don't do that before I've got to that stage. But I'm still floating around, you know, between hours and trying to fit a yoga class in here and there, which is great. But then that also sucks up its own time. But I also love the fluidity of this job. And I also love the fact that you can dictate your own time and try and be organized about it if you want to but also equally if you're really tired one day and you really can't do anything then you can't so I, I do love it and I, it works well for me for now that's great so what are your methods for keeping well while you're maintaining all your different aspects of the business this whole food journey began with my own health and with my own issues with food um you know thinking I'm putting on weight, not eating enough, and then eating too much of sweet things, going on a diet, doing Weight Watchers, getting off that, and then binging. I've always had 
a sweet tooth and I've always indulged it and not realized what I was doing, doing to my own body. And therefore, keeping well is really important. But the whole food journey also began with yoga. I became editor of a yoga magazine out in Dubai and became the first editor. I launched the magazine and that really got me into yoga. And there's a lovely community out there in Dubai, even though many don't think there would be, but there's a massive yoga community there. And it was sort of starting to build up its pace when I was living there. Now it's um, it's amazing. It's huge. And there's just so many studios. I did a lot of yoga while I was out there and I really got into it. And that's what really brought me back to my own health and what I was putting into my body. It started that process of creating the awareness within me. And that's how I went back to my own home cooked food. And when I moved back to London um, around four years ago, I the first thing I did was take up yoga, go to yoga studios. I think my first and favorite, and even now it's my favorite studio, is Try Yoga. Um, and I used to go very often. I found my favorite teachers. I went on a retreat, and I've kept up going on a retreat once a year, just because I really love meeting new people. I love trying new yoga teachers and going to new places because I love traveling anyway. There's such a lovely way to combine holiday, food, yoga, the things that you love most and meeting new people, which is always lovely. So I went on my first yoga retreat four years ago. I've been every year since. Um, and that's one of my main things, doing yoga, keeping it up. And over the years, I've realized that what I love most in yoga. So now I do a lot more kundalini kundalini yoga and there's amazing teachers in london so i love going to yoga studios i also like going to the gym but my main release or my main way of sort of staying alive awake and passionate about everything is just to keep doing yoga and through that feeding my body with all the right stuff and really eating well and indulging but not in an overindulgent way sure Oh, that's really good finding Does what that make sense? yeah totally finding what works for you and just making sure that you yeah. make time for I think it. balance has become such a key word now people are going on about balance and yeah and they're also talking about not elim- eliminating whole food groups which is great um but I also think not overindulging in the healthy foods not overindulging on the date balls mm. and the sugary stuff which I used to think oh yes I can have this that and the other but actually it does you can't overeat that stuff you can't have like 15 20 dates a day I mean I'm sure you can but you know you would not be doing your body any favors um and your teeth I mean I think my teeth have suffered as a result of my sweet snacking I've just recently realized and there's so many things that you have to be aware of body wise and they also feed your mind so just keeping a very very good balance in eating at a good time rather than any time which is what I used to do and and doing that a lot more rather than and doing that habitually rather than doing that sometimes mm. yeah definitely yeah it's maintaining the variety isn't it you have a variety of foods rather than specific foods that you think exactly yeah and I I do I do think you can change your taste buds I think even if you're naturally born a sweet eater and you naturally crave sweet Mm. things you can change that because I have naturally craved sweet things my whole life and over time yes I do like dark chocolate and I do like the odd I don't know muffin or whatever it is biscuit but I've really really trained my taste buds over the last two I think more so in the last two years um and I will have the dark chocolate but I won't um have it all the time I'll make sure I have it in a certain sort of once a day or something if I need to and otherwise it's sort of savory all day cool um what does the coming year hold for you the coming year I want to make sure I figure out my next book 
and I'm in the process of thinking about what that might be. I've got a few ideas and options. I'm also signing up an a- with an agency, which will really help me with the literary side of, and get, getting things on track. And I would love to try and do more YouTube, more TV, because I really do enjoy it. I love talking into the camera, <laughs> bizarrely. <laughs> My new friend. <laughs> no, I do like it. And I think I'd like to do more of that, more YouTube, more like regularity with that. Um, and... And figure out what's next, because I don't think I figured it out yet. So book for sure, a bit more TV stuff, and possibly, possibly expanding the clubs. let's see. Amazing. Where can people come to your supper clubs, find out when they are, find out how to get your book? Yes, I completely forgot. I want to do more supper clubs. I love them. <laughs> I love them. I literally, it's like, I literally thrive off the energy of a supper club the day after. I, I mean, I love it. Mm. I love the moment... They can start, start, start cooking from it, yeah. cooking for it, and then the evening, and then afterwards. It's just brilliant. Yes, they do give you a buzz. And all the events, like yoga brunches, supper clubs, I want to do more events. I think you can find out about my supper clubs and all my events on my website. That's miramanic.com, M-I-R-A-M-A-N-E-K.com, and my Instagram. I'm actually much more active on Instagram than any other. I think most of us are, mm. social media. And that's at miramanic, again, at M-I-R-A-M-A-N-E-K. And um, I do post on Facebook, and again, that's Mira Miramanic. I do post on Twitter, and I do post on uh, Pinterest now and again. But mainly, it's my website, my instagram and my facebook so and my youtube as well please watch my videos i'd love to have more subscribers because i'm really trying to grow that as well and if you want to buy my book all about healthy indian inspired food with gorgeous photography please get it on amazon it's called saffron soul published by jackie small quarto books and you can also find it in most bookshops so thank you so much for listening and it's been amazing speaking to you guys. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been incredible, really interesting. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at What's Cooking Podcast and on Twitter at What's Cooking Pod. You can drop us an email at the What's Cooking Podcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us five stars. Bye. Bye.